This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's text comes from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Therefore, you will see him just as he told you. And they went up, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. This is God's word. Please be seated. This is our last sermon in the Gospel of Mark. We have been traveling and journeying through this Gospel for well over a year now, and we appropriately land on Mark chapter 16 this morning on Easter morning. Uh, Next week, we will jump into about a 10 to 12 week series, depending on how it all gets teased out, uh, looking at major themes in the book of Proverbs. Uh, So just so you know what is coming. The doctrine of the resurrection is in a lot of ways, and I think arguably so, the foundation of the church, of our theology, of our lives, of our hope. I was contemplating this week, I was reflecting this week, I was thinking about my life in ministry, not just as the pastor here, but as a dad and and as a husband and as a friend and as a member of a city group. And I was contemplating and really reflecting on how important the doctrine of the resurrection is in my life and in my ability to minister to others and to love them. I was really um, spending a lot of time just reflecting on just practical episodes in my life where if I did not believe and hope in and communicate the resurrection, I would have sort of been there pointlessly. And I was thinking about, not did I declare it the way Jesus declared it to the angel, the way the angel declared it uh, to the women, the way the women would declare it to the disciples eventually after they thawed from their fear. I was thinking that even though I don't think I ever really said the the word resurrection, but a couple of times that it's just really crucial and central to my life and the significant call on every one of our lives to minister the resurrection hope wherever we go, with whoever we go with and whatever we do. Think about it with me. I, I was with a friend who was really struggling to believe that his sins were forgiven past, present, and future. What bearing does the resurrection have on that? 
when Christ came out of the tomb three days after dying for our sins, when he walks out in new immortality, when he walks out indestructible, can't be corrupted, and he walks out uh, to be uh, to ascend to heaven a few days later, God is riding over the sky, paid in full. God is saying through the resurrection of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. My wrath is satisfied. This resurrection vindicates his life and your forgiveness. I had some friends sitting with me at a conference a few weeks ago and they were ministering the resurrection to me and and I was continuing to realize something that I've been waking up to now for years, it feels like. I was realizing how much of my life is lived trying to earn God's favor. How does the resurrection have any bearing on that? Well, if Jesus comes out of the grave, that means he didn't die for his sins and he died for my sins. And if he went to the cross as a perfect man, loved by God, completely approved of, completely enjoyed by the Father, that when he comes out, not only does it say paid in full, but it says beloved son, beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. I have sat with friends reeling and mourning the loss of loved ones. What does the resurrection have to do with that? That if Jesus is the first born from the dead, then others united to him by faith will one day rise again as well. I sat with a friend, a friend who was struggling mightily, hating deeply, and listen, failing horribly in the realm of a besetting sin. What does the resurrection have to do with that? She's okay. <laughs> I, have a, I have one at home today, one that coughed all last night. What does the resurrection have to do with my friend struggling mightily, hating deeply, and failing horribly in the realm of a besetting sin? That when he can't believe it for himself, I believe for him. That the power exerted by God in the resurrection is the power exerted in his life by the Holy Spirit changing him into the likeness of Christ. And I can think back on my life when I could not have resurrection hope in an addiction and other people believed for me. Because he's raised, God can deliver you from this enslavement. I sat with a friend with a physical disability, a family member actually can't kneel, can't stand, can't leap for joy. What does the resurrection have to do with that? That one day, in her new body, in her new immortal, indestructible body, she will kneel before Jesus. She will stand to her feet. She'll leap for joy. She'll run. That's what the resurrection has to do with that. Do you know how fulfilling it has been to minister the resurrection hope to the hearts and lives of my friends? It's been the most satisfying thing of my life. In essence, I want every one of us this morning here, present here or or listening if you happen to listen, I want you to know that the call on your life is this significant call and purpose to minister and massage resurrection hope into the hearts and lives of other people. That regardless of where you stand in the gospel, regardless of where you are in understanding the faith, regardless of who you are, I know from my life and from scripture that the most satisfying thing that you could experience in life is being a minister of the proclamation, he was crucified. 
He's risen. He's not here. Look at the place where he lay. I don't care if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, if you're a nominal attendee that your life and uh, really is uh, more about something other than Christianity and you just sort of wear it as a label. I don't care if you're the children of the church and some failure happened in your life and you walked away and, and now you're back for some reason you don't understand. I don't care if you're a curious seeker and the gospel is beginning to become more clear to you week after week after week when we discuss it. And I don't care if you're a stubborn skeptic. I want you, you to know that along with me, the purpose and the call in our lives is to join the women in going and proclaiming the resurrection hope in every sphere of our lives and every relationship in our lives. Two points this morning. We will only live out and fulfill and enjoy this purpose for our lives if we know that Mark's account of the resurrection contains one, truth for our minds, and two, grace for our hearts. This morning, the two points are truth for our minds and grace for our hearts. Let's pray. John tells us that you came full of grace and truth. John tells us that in you, we will find answers to all of our questions because you are the truth. And the Bible as a whole tells us that in you, we will find grace to cover a multitude of sins. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and teach us this morning, that you would give our minds a grasp of what is historically true, and you would give our hearts a grasp of what is eternally beautiful, that you're a God of grace and truth. In your name we pray, amen. Pick up with me in verse six, truth for our minds. And the angel said to them, them being uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, he said to them, do not be alarmed. Verse five tells us that when the women entered the tomb and found an angel instead of a corpse, they were alarmed. They were greatly surprised. They were dumbfounded. This is the exact same word that's used for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, as a human, has a divine encounter. This is a normal reaction in Scripture. When anyone encounters God or a messenger sent by him. Pick back up in verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Verses one through three tell the story of these three women. They're heading to the tomb to perform a last act of service and devotion. At sundown on the Sabbath, the the day before this day, when it was agreeable and allowed by their law, they purchased expensive ointments or spices, it says in our text, to go and anoint Jesus. Uh, Israelites did not embalm a corpse like Egyptians uh, in order to try and preserve it, but Israelites would anoint a corpse as an act of love and devotion. And we can imagine now, two days later, the decay of this body, the decay of this corpse, or so they assume that had been mutilated and exposed, they they know they're gonna walk into um, a, a very disgusting situation. And yet, because they love and have followed and served Jesus now for three years, they desire to go and anoint him. The next morning, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, they travel to the tomb, and they're wondering who, who is gonna roll back the massive 
stone for us. Remember in chapter 15, verse 47, they knew exactly where Jesus was laid and they saw the stone rolled in place. They get there in verse four and to their surprise, the very large stone has been rolled back. And so they walk in. The angel continues to the dumbfounded women expecting a corpse. Truth for our minds. This is what he says. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Very simple. It's amazing how much debate through the centuries has been held over this simple statement of truth. Through the years, starting on this Sunday, this Sunday several thousand years ago, many other explanations for the empty tomb have been given, sold, and bought. Some say he swooned. Some would say, listen, it's not that, um, it's not that, that uh, the people um, there were actually living a lie and living in deceit, but what happened is, is Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He, he swooned. He fell asleep. He was in some, some state where the soldiers were confused and they thought he was dead. And when he got into the tomb and in the temperature of the tomb and in the humidity of the tomb, he was revived. Our text clearly says he was crucified. The Roman uh, centurions through empire of Rome uh, literally crucified hundreds of thousands of victims. They were professionals. They weren't haphazard about it. They had it down to a very grotesque but exact science. There is no record in all of Roman history of anyone surviving a crucifixion. Well, the women, they must have been at the wrong tomb. You know, they were, in, uh, they were in serious grief and they were depressed and distressed and they were at the wrong tomb. But the angel says to them, look at the place where they laid him. Thinking back to 1547, where they saw exactly where he was laid. Skeptics will say, listen, the disciples are making up this legend of his resurrection because they want to have authority and power. And so what they make up is this legend that he came back and that he told them that they were in control and they were supposed to have all the power and people should submit to them. And then he was raised to the heavens. And this is the story that the the disciples have come up with so that people would follow them. If that's the case, where are these courageous, faithful, and persevering leaders of the church If they were going to make up a lie, they would certainly have themselves there looking strong and heroic. John tells us that they're afraid and behind closed doors. Listen, within a few years, these same disciples who supposedly made up this legend so they could have all the control started to die martyrs' deaths. You would think after two or three, they might say, this is not working out quite as well as we had hoped. Maybe we should say that they're in control of the church now and get this off our back. They never did. Listen, Mark is writing history. He is not writing legend. If you, write, if you read legend from this time in the Greco-Roman world or even the Jewish world, it's nothing like what Mark is writing here. He, he wants us to know that these women, he lists them three times in eight verses. He's footnoting his sources. He's saying, these women, I witnessed all of it. 
There's a scholar of history, a man who studies how history was written. His name is Richard Baucom, and he wrote the book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he says that, that in a legend, you would never have an eyewitness. But when you're trying to write history, the most important way to substantiate your history is to talk about eyewitnesses because people can go and find them. Eyewitnesses were much better than written records because you could go to them and, and cross-examine them and corroborate what they say to be true and listen to multiple people and see if their testimony lines up. Opponents of Christianity will say, well, Mark, Mark couldn't know that. This is a very complex, this, is a very, um, this conspiracy is really well thought out. He, he knew that he needed to have eyewitnesses. Well, here's one major problem. Women were not trusted as eyewitnesses in Jewish or Roman culture. Listen to a Jewish document about court proceedings. This is the training of a judge. This is the general rule. Any evidence that a woman is not eligible to bring, usurers or people who lend money at an unreasonably high interest rate, dice players, pigeon flyers, traffickers and Sabbath year produce and slaves are not eligible to bring either. And here's the point. The evidence established by the testimony of a woman has the same validity as the testimony brought about by usurers, dice players, pigeon flyers, traffickers in Sabbath year produce, slaves. That's the Jewish culture. A Greek pagan philosopher named Celsus wrote uh, this in what he called the true word, which was uh, his document to try to refute Christianity. He hated Christianity. He has two primary arguments in his document. This is the first one. One of the reasons we know that Christianity can't be true is the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And he wrote this, not me. And we all know that women are hysterical. Okay, so you say popular Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, it's different from ours. So what? Listen to what a commentator wrote. That the news had first been delivered by women was inconvenient and troublesome to the church. For their testimony lacked value as evidence. The primitive community would not have invented this detail which can be explained only on the ground that it happened. Listen to Luke chapter 24. The women do finally uh, adhere and obey the angel's command and they go and tell the disciples and this is what the disciples thought of their communication. Luke 24. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Listen, if Mark is making all of this up, if he's inventing it, He would never choose women to be the only eyewitnesses of the most important parts of the story, the death, the burial, and the empty tomb of Jesus. Finally, and I'm just, I'm putting this out there because I realize there's a wide range of people here this morning trying to figure out, and if you're a believer and you've never really thought about how reasonable and rational it is to believe exactly what the Bible says about the empty tomb, this is to fortify your faith. If you're trying to figure this out, I'm just putting out there um, um, truth for you to grapple with, or, or at least what Christians have believed now for several thousand years, and say, let's, let's just at least have some intellectual integrity, and let's talk to one another about this. But if you don't want to think any more about Scripture or this cultural context, what do you do with history? The witnesses of the four Gospels, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are unequivocal. Following the crucifixion, Jesus' disciples were scattered. Their hopes were shattered. And why didn't they go the way of the rest? 
what halted the disillusion of this messianic movement. If you study history, you can see lists of messianic pretenders in Jesus' day and age. Lists of men who would rally people to them by saying, hey, I have a special connection with God, or hey, I'm anointed by God, or hey, I'm more special than you. God's telling us what we should do. Let's go do it. Lists and lists of them because the Jewish people were desperate to be out from under Roman control. But for every one of those messianic pretenders, they died and their movement died with them. How do we explain that today, Christianity is by far the largest religious faith on the face of the earth. How do we explain that? What is our alternative explanation? For us to have any intellectual integrity, we have to come up with a historically possible explanation for this tiny, little, scared group exploding, changing the Roman world, and becoming the largest faith group today like no other group ever has. Now, as odd and as shocking as this might sound, I want to admit that I may have just wasted a lot of your time. I want to say out loud, and I'm going to say it anyway, as odd and as shocking as it sounds, that if you're trying to decide what you believe, if you are a seeker trying to understand, you need to know that all the facts and all the arguments All the evidence I just put on the table will not save you. You need to know that of all all that the truth, all of that truth was not enough for those of us who are believers. In other words, for those of us who have been converted, who have received Christ, who call ourselves Christians, all that truth was not enough for us. It will not be enough for you if you're trying to figure this out. In fact, we know from Scripture that knowing the the truth and the facts of the resurrection was not even enough for the people who actually witnessed the resurrection. Think about this with me. If you go to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 27 at the end and the beginning of chapter 28, you're gonna find that uh, while Jesus is buried in the tomb, the Sanhedrin go to Pilate and they say, Pilate, would you please put guards at the entrance to the tomb? And Pilate says, you have your own guards. I give you permission to guard this specific tomb. And so they do. And on resurrection morning, as the women are walking to the tomb, an angel descends from heaven. And then the result of this dissension is an earthquake. And they roll back the stone. And listen to what Matthew says of the guards. For fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. After the angel sent the women uh, to the apostles to tell them of Jesus' resurrection, it says that the guards went to the Sanhedrin to report on what they saw and what they heard. They went to report on what they knew to be true. They went to report on what they knew was historical fact. It says that the Sanhedrin, those who had condemned Christ and convinced Rome to crucify him, they, they assembled, and this is the result of their assembly. Chapter 28, verse 12. This is to the people who knew that it was true. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the guards and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. What's the point? Just having the facts is not enough. The facts are necessary for faith, but they are not sufficient for faith. That these men who saw everything go down exactly as I'm 
describing today had more love for money than the truth. That the Sanhedrin who heard first account, eyewitness accounts of this event had more love for control than truth. Their love of money and control was more powerful to them, more important to them, more motivating to them, more true, if you will, to them than the facts of the resurrection. I want you to know that if I were able to convince you completely and utterly through 742 debates about the resurrection, that the most reasonable and logical explanation for the empty tomb is exactly what the angel says in our text. If I was able to get you there, there is still something in your heart that will fight against it and deny it. Because if I don't give grace for your heart in addition to truth for your mind, you won't believe. For us to be effective communicators of this resurrection power, we have to believe the truth for our minds and the grace for our hearts. Let's move on uh, to truth, uh, grace for our hearts, excuse me, uh, verse seven. So after the what of the resurrection, verse six, he gives them the so what in verse seven. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. How is that a word of grace for the heart? How is that enough grace to convince us that we can come clean with the reality that we do know that God exists, that we do know that we've offended him, that we do know that we haven't obeyed him? How is that grace for the heart? First, think about this. They had to go. He says to the women, go, tell his disciples and Peter. Where are the disciples? They're living in continued fear and unbelief. John, I, said, already, I already said, told us in chapter 20 that they were huddled in fear behind closed doors, but they're also living in unbelief. Jesus at least six times told them, I will be raised to life after three days. Not one of them said, huh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Did he say something about the third day? I feel like that's important. I wonder what that might have been about. Not one. Not one said, hey, he said he was going to rise on this day. What could it hurt? Let's run to the tomb and see what happened. No. The disciples failed in deserting him. And they continue to fail to believe and act on what he said is true. Jesus told them in chapter 14, verse 27, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Second, a word of grace. Think of what he didn't say. Jesus did not tell the angel to tell the women, to tell the disciples this. You go tell those good for nothing, faithless and scared, backstabbing cowards that I'm going to Galilee. And I might, I might meet with them if they grovel and beg me to forgive them, but they better grovel if they have any hope at all. Third, what, what does he call them? Think about this. Think about this. Angels are primarily messengers of God's word. Literally, this angel says to the women, tell his disciples. What does that mean? Jesus said to the angel, tell my disciples, and I'll meet them in Galilee. 
Do you see how beautiful that little grammatical word of possession is? Those are, do you know what the word disciple means? Pupil and follower. How well is that going right now? Are they following him? Have they learned anything from him? And he says, those are my disciples. When I was in student ministry, right after being ordained in the Presbyterian Church, I was doing student ministry in Polk County. And um, at the same time, I was also getting um, some work going in a really blighted neighborhood and um, joining in with a friend there and living in a very dangerous um, and really a very gross part of town um, was a young 17-year-old boy. And I met this boy, and through time I found out that, um, that he, had, uh, he was the son of a pastor. And uh, I found out that this son of a pastor had uh, shamed his entire family, had rebelled against his parents publicly, had brought to light some of their sin that should have never been brought to light. As a result, his dad uh, was shamed and out of the pulpit and, and unemployed and disgraced and just humiliated wherever he went in our county. And so I, uh, as happens uh, in a very transient place, in a very transient community, I lost contact with uh, the 17-year-old boy. And so I finally had the occasion to go uh, to another city in our county and meet his dad. This is what he said at the very end. Hear this word of grace for your hearts. After being shamed, disgraced, slandered, after the life he had hoped in was shattered, he said, if you see my son, tell him I want to go fishing. Do you see the word of grace that Jesus says, send my disciples to Galilee? Jesus doesn't work the way you and I work. He doesn't work the way of religion. It's not if you repent, I might forgive you, but it's I love you and I forgive you and I make it possible for you to repent. But there's an even bigger word of grace in verse seven. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Why is Peter singled out? Why is this so loving, so thoughtful, so gracious, and so pastoral of Jesus? What if the women come to the disciples and they said, we met with an angel, he's a messenger from Jesus, and Jesus said to get my disciples and meet me in Galilee. What would Peter have thought? What do you and I think after our massive failures? He would have said to them, you guys, you, you guys go. He, he can't mean me. Not after what I've done. I, I saw the disappointment in his eye when I turned my back on him. He says specifically, get my disciples, and our text translate, get Peter. It actually says in the Greek, get the Peter. There's an article in front of his name. When he talks about Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of this person and that person or Salome, there's no article. There's no the Mary, the Mary, the Salome. It's get Mary, Mary, and Salome. Why does he say get me the Peter? Because Jesus gave him that name. That name means rock and foundation of the church. He said go get 
my disciples, not because they're acting like it, but because I'm gracious, and go get my rock, not because he's acting like it, but because I'm gracious, and have him meet me in Galilee. Listen, Peter is the foundation and the rock of the church. More accurately, his confession of Jesus as the Messiah is the foundation of the church, not because he achieved it, or he succeeded in it, or he earned it, but because of election, calling, blessing, and grace. Listen, you got to know this. Peter ends up being the leader of this outfit. How can that possibly be? The one who fails the worst is promoted to leader. Listen to what Tim Keller says. Because his screw-up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest, and his grasp of grace will be the greatest, and that will make him the most qualified person to lead Jesus's movement. This is not how the world or religion tends to work. Now is it? Think back to Celsus. I told you he had two primary problems, two primary arguments um, with the church. The first one was who was communicating the message, that is women. But the second one is the content of the message. Listen uh, to what he wrote. He wrote that Christianity is bad philosophy based on fictitious history. He wrote that Christianity is, quote, not respectable. It's nothing to, quote, take pride in. He said that the Christian teachers were mainly cobblers and weavers, common people who have no power over men of education and philosophy. He taught that the qualifications, these teachers, these cobblers and weavers said the qualifications for conversion are ignorance and childlike timidity. And it disgusted him. He wrote this, like all quacks, they gather a crowd of slaves, children, women, and idlers. I speak bitterly about this because I feel bitterly about this. When we are invited into the mysteries, talking about Roman philosophers teaching him, the masters or his teachers, they use a different tone. This is Celsus talking about his religion. They say, come to us, you who are of clean hands, you who are of pure speech, you who are unstained by crime, you who have a good conscience towards God, you who have done justly and lived uprightly. And he says, this is respectable and a religion to be proud of. This is Celsus's words. Let me tell you, this is very true what he's about to say. But the Christians say, come to us, you sinners. You who are fools or children, who, who are miserable, and, and you shall enter the kingdom of heaven, the rogue, the burglar, the despoiler of temples. These are their proselytes. Jesus, they say, was sent to save sinners. Was he not sent to help those who have kept themselves free from sin? They say that God will save the unjust man if he just repents and humbles himself. I speak bitterly about this because I feel bitterly about this. Celsus could not get his mind around the wisdom of God because the wisdom of God is the foolishness of this world. And the pride of our hearts kicks against it. Religion says you're saved by strength. Religion says you're saved if you do good. Religion says you're saved if you're morally right. Religion says if your failures are minor and not that significant that you're going to be okay. And so in religion and in pride and in what is contrary to the gospel... 
failure and repentance. They, they disrupt the flow. They decrease the flow of God's ministry power in your life. But in the gospel, the gospel says that world and religion is all wrong. The gospel says this, salvation is by grace. Salvation came through the weakness of Christ on the cross and it comes to us through weakness. When we admit we're inadequate, when we admit that we don't have the ability, when we repent for our sins, the gospel of grace says this, repentance after failure doesn't block God's power, it enhances it. Kelsus was right in his description about Christianity, but he was wrong in his decision. What about us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to believe that in extending your kingdom of grace, we will find great satisfaction. We will find great joy. We will find great peace. We will find all of our deepest longings met in you and being on mission with you. Help us to believe that the resurrection we proclaim is the resurrection that is true for our minds and is grace for our hearts. Would you help us to believe, Jesus, that you died so that we don't have to? And would you cause us to believe that your resurrected life is the life that is now in us and is the life we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth? Would you convince us that our moral and spiritual failure qualifies us for the gospel if we'll simply confess it and own it and thrust it into your grace? May we see the depth of our sin. May we thrust it into your grace and may we be driven out to minister grace and peace to others. In your name we pray, amen.